a towering home run, and a glass blower. Stay tuned. Good afternoon. I am Chrissy Hewitt, and along with my colleague Stephen Luque, went to visit sculptor, glassblower George Jersich, who lives in Los Osos. As you will hear, George and I started teaching at Cal Poly at the same time, but it's always interesting to learn new things about a colleague and a longtime friend. Join us now in Los Osos. Welcome to Ears on Art. Good afternoon. We are here at the studio of George Jersich. Say hello. Hello. And of course, Krista is here as well. Hi there. George, you work predominantly in glass. Are you a glass blower, slumper? What, what is the particular technique that you use? Well, primarily a glass blower, but my background is in sculpture, and I try to think of myself really as a sculptor who uses glass. That's the definition I prefer to use. How long have you been doing glass? I started glass blowing in 1972. What brought you to Cal Poly? There was, a, through a kind of peanut farm program, uh, students actively involved in glass blowing that my instructor, Dr. Robert C. Fritz, began at San Jose State University. I was one of the last graduates of the group of graduates that actually sought out teaching jobs within the California state system. At the time, there were very few opportunities to sell the product, but I was more interested in helping students. And as I was the assistant to Dr. Robert C. Fritz, uh, it was natural for me to move on into the academic field, which he kept encouraging me to do. When did you start at Cal Poly? Uh, I arrived at summer quarter of 1976, and I worked for one quarter, and then I returned to San Jose State, where I was holding a position as a technical staff. They called me and offered me two classes back at Cal Poly instead of the one that I had taught during the summer programs. It was a little bit more stable, and, and my professor said, you should do it. You should go there and see what develops, young man. So I did. I was offered a class in glass blowing and a class in elementary art education. Yeah, the art department back in that time was a fledgling program, pretty right. much. <laughs> True, there was no major, and I arrived in September of 76. The process of getting the major established had already started, so George and I were there during the next year or so when it was being finalized. But when we arrived, it was just students taking classes because they wanted to. When I took art classes at that time, a lot of them were architecture students who needed to f fulfill their humanities. You taught at Cal Poly for how long? I retired in 2007, so I spent 31 One. years <laughs> in, in the department, but I also opted to FERP, so I spent another five years under half-time auspices. I left the campus in 2011. George, when you were at San Jose State and you were working in glass, Give us a little feel of how that was happening around the country at that stage and how many universities were even teaching glass blowing 
there were probably 12 or 14 major universities, including Massachusetts College of Art, Rhode Island School of Design, uh, Tyler School of Art in um, Philadelphia. There was a, a large summer camp at Pilchuck School, which was started by my instructor, Dr. Robert C. Fritz. In California, there was Fresno State, San Francisco State, Chico State University. I guess there was also Northridge and also Cal State Fullerton. But Cal Poly was one of the last ones, and I felt very lucky and very fortunate that I was able to get my foot in the door on that last group of students who arrived in teaching jobs, at least, in California. Knowing glassblowing's been around for centuries, but in terms of things that were really brought into educational institutions in a more contemporary way, can you get a feel for when that started? Right. My instructor, Dr. Robert C. Fritz, um, took a workshop in Madison, Wisconsin with a kind of the seminal father of, of studio glassblowing in the United States. Uh, his name was Harvey K. Littleton. He worked with a man who was an engineer who came from the John Mansville Corporation, mm -hmm. whose name was Dominic Labino. Mr. Labino and Harvey K. Littleton decided to put together a kind of a pilot program at the University of Wisconsin, and my instructor, who had an ongoing interest in, in developing a glass-blowing facility at a university, so he returned to San Jose, and he built the first furnace there. Talk a little bit about what it was to be at Cal Poly specifically in terms of your ability to build the kilns, the furnaces, and everything else that you needed. How did you get some of that done? And your first glass studio was on the fringe of what used to be the baseball diamond, so I'll let you tell that story. When I was first introduced to the beginnings of glass at Cal Poly, it was done so through a colleague that became a major mentor for me to begin. That man was named Henry Wessels. And Henry had begun a class a, a year or two before, and I discovered the program through a student who had visited Cal Poly. He went to visit the facilities as they were, and he came back and he said, George, he said, you're about ready to graduate. You should look at Cal Poly. It looks like they're trying to start something, but you have quite a bit of technical experience. So maybe you should pitch an idea towards Cal Poly to begin a class. And um, that's exactly what I ended up doing. When I arrived upon the scene and surveyed it myself, there was a gravel yard with a cyclone fence around it, no roof. Uh, there was a pipe with some gas, and uh, there were some piles of bricks here and there. It was pretty much start from scratch. So a couple friends of mine, my classmates actually from up north, came down, and we kind of patched together the first little shop we could come up with out of what materials we had. I was ready to offer the first class the first week uh, of summer. It was it was quite a challenge, but we're very excited. We were just going, oh my goodness, look at this. We get to blow glass and nobody else has, you know, this kind of support at this time. So this is a great opportunity. We offered the class. It was full. That's probably why, you know, I got invited back in the fall. <laughs> Nothing speaks loudly like success. <laughs> <laughs> the maintenance folk on campus 
had quite a bit of freedom to just recognize that somebody might need something. And I would remember you telling stories of, well, we just got this load of bricks that they were taking out of some place up the hill, and now we have a floor. Dick Tartaglia and um, Jerry Gentilucci at, were in charge of facilities, and, and uh, they helped a tremendous amount. And Tom Johnson, our department chair, as well as uh, Richard Harrison, who was our technician in the art department. So between all of them, they helped me kludge together materials. And I uh, had a lot of uh, architecture students who were willing to work until midnight <laughs> all their own time to help me out do silly things like pave the the, the gravel floor in a, into a brick floor and uh, maintain the fence around the perimeter. It's almost like uh, building something from the ground up and I had a lot of fun doing it myself. And then eventually you were able to get a sense of a roof to keep the baseballs out? Right. Right. Well, the first time a baseball home run was hit and somebody caught it while they were heating something at the glory hall, which is a large oven where they had a piece of glass on the end of a pipe and all of a sudden a baseball came sailing over the fence and they reached up and they caught the baseball. It was like time to get some more barrier up because we didn't know when there was her coming in and whether anybody else could catch. So we, Tom Johnson was very instrumental in helping me get a facilities grant. The, the campus uh, put together the funding to put up a temporary uh, roof, which allowed us to run a class in the winter. Tell you what, the first winter we didn't have the roof and it was funny because we were all blowing glass and rubber boots because we were standing in three inches of water. The roof helped a lot. I would get to go there because it was also where the ceramic department was. And so I would be trekking my students across campus because I needed the kilns. Roger Bailey was the lead instructor in ceramics at that point. He literally had an office that was a closet and he would open the door and his desk would be there and he could pull up a chair to the desk. There was a lot of improvising for people. What were the majors of the students predominantly who took these classes? Well, they were all pretty much electives. Probably at that time, 80% of them were architecture students. Yeah. And then a mix of biology, um, humanities, a few humanities students, but mostly students who had some kind of sense of technical skills, the hands-on type of things. Yeah, the early years of Cal Poly Art Department were really just do-it-yourself. It was fledgling and people just had to make do with what was given to them. I also remember, George, that later on when we moved to the facilities that had been the old library, and that often it was by then engineering students who were doing a lot to help you maintain and or build new furnaces and stuff, right? Yes, I had some very good mechanical engineering students that began to show up, and they had senior project ambitions, and one in particular, uh, Ron Allers, who actually I saw yesterday at uh, Trader Joe's, <laughs> he was one of the students who actually made our next glass oven his senior project. We were able to obtain funding through small grants for materials and uh, he helped uh, design it and put it together and we used it uh, for the interim period between when we left the area we were recently speaking about which was called the jungle mm -hmm. 
to uh, a kind of interim space in air conditioning engineering building. (laughs) (laughs) And we were there for two years before we moved to the remodeled Dexter building, which was the library. Mm -hmm. And actually, my first year at Cal Poly, that the downstairs back portion of the Dexter was actually the bookstore. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And the classroom I was in was uh, the vending machine room. Mm -hmm. So in years prior, and that's where I would buy lunch. Okay, so you were teaching glass blowing. When did the fusing and slumping come in? And if you want to give a brief definition of what those are, I know that you certainly developed quite a program with that discipline in glass in addition to the blowing. Well, in the mid-1980s, glass began to become a desirable marketable commodity. One of the areas that became a a kind of a featured market was materials themselves because a number of people wanted to do this in their home studios in the garage. They didn't want to build a whole, you know, glass melting shop. So companies like Bullseye Glass Company of Portland, Oregon, or Spectrum Glass Company of Woodenbridge, Washington, began to make sheet glass that was, uh, in effect, compatible with itself in multiple colors. We ended up becoming involved with Bullseye, and Bullseye would give us what we were called teacher kits, which gave us a tremendous amount of experimental material to work with. We were not unique in this effort. Bullseye was very generous, and as the years went by, we shared the information with the other campuses, and the field sort of developed on its own eventually producing a number of private practitioners. Fusing is kind of like making a pizza uh, in, in that you cut sheets of glass, you layer it together, you put it in the kiln on a flat shelf, and then you uh, fire it until it all kind of semi-melts together, but not completely. And then you can go into a second firing with a mold underneath to bend it into a shape or slump it into a shape. So. These were the areas that we began to explore. Okay, so am I hearing correctly that you and maybe just a couple of others around the country were really forerunners in getting fusing and slumping really underway? Well, I think so. Um, Even when I was trying to finish my final terminal degree, as they call it, a Master of Fine Arts degree uh, at, at San Jose State University, I worked in glass fusing myself. My idea was to make marbles and um, objects that were more similar to coil building in clay and then fusing those objects together into a final fused form. I had to learn a lot about cooling curves. My objects ended up being 35 or 40 pounds, (laughs) where most people's were, you know, trying to make things in two or three pound sizes. So I had to anneal uh, or cool things over a period of three or four days sometimes in the kilns. But um, you know, I had weekends and I had some time uh, during quarter breaks and so on when I could do those explorations. So that's how I ended up finishing my graduate degree. You think of glass, I mean, we think of it as this hard but very breakable object, but the idea that if it's molten at one second and allowed to cool too fast, it will just explode. So that's this cooling down or annealing, which is basically taking the stress out of something. Yeah, and as I understand it, glass is one of the few materials where you have 
a spectrum of temperatures where it remains pliable mm. and so that you can work with it at, at different levels. Cold glass is traditionally a mosaic process. You take a sheet, you cut it, you assemble it, uh, leaded glass or stained glass windows, let's say. The second area, which we were just talking about, which is fusing, that becomes the warm glass area. And then the blown glass or molten glass is hot glass. That's the third area. And that would be where you take the glass, you put it into a pot in a oven so hot that it melts it into substance. It's like honey in a jar. And your task then is to withdraw the honey-like material and then shape it into something. You can either do that in on the end of a pipe, such as in glass blowing, or you can use a ladle and you can pour the molten material into molds. Well, there's actually another area, which is surfacing, sandblasting, painting on glass. Some people use engraving techniques to carve into the surface lightly and then there's stone cutting so that's an area where things are shaped by literally using lapidary techniques mm -hmm. and carving the object out of a solid block. So what this did for the individual person around the country was to say I need to buy a kill so you could do this fusing and or slumping process and the cost of that per month tends to be about? Glass fusing studios can be, you know, scaled down to two or three hundred dollars a month. If you're running your own private studio, because glass furnaces run 24-7, because if you just let it cool down, everything cracks. Well, glass blowing studios usually run at at least $500 a month if they're running all month. I mean, some of them are much more than that, depending on the scale of the operation. But glass fusing studios can be, you know, scaled down to two or three hundred dollars a month. Uh, and now, what's newest in the development of studio glass is flame working, which is a whole other area where uh, someone can work with a couple of uh, bottles of propane, oxygen mix, and a torch and uh, sculpt things in a very small scale, but uh, uh, quite a number of people have been very, very, uh, become very adept at that kind of uh, forming in, in the last 10 years, let's say. So that's been kind of a way to scale down the original cost of a mega studio into a very small scale, affordable thing that one could do within their own home. Outside of the actual working with the glass. The other thing that you did was to start a statewide organization that I'm sure did quite a bit to help pull people together. I was um, just leaving graduate school. Uh, I realized that there was a need to kind of stay in touch with my colleagues and so we needed a network. I was helpful in creating a kind of a statewide forum in called the California Glass Exchange. My wife and I actually were the main administrators of it for almost 18 years. Did the first one at San Jose State, but the second one we did down at in North Hollywood. From there, uh, we managed to uh, move it around the state, and uh, it just became kind of a you know yearly symposium for enthusiasts on the West Coast for glass forming. Thank you, George. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Next week, we will continue our conversation with George and learn specifically about the work that he does. In the meantime, if you'd like to see some of it, you may do a web search 
for George Jersich, J-E-R-C-I-C-H. Unfortunately, when George and I retired, our programs were retired as well. However, in large part, due to George's teaching, there are several wonderful glass studios in the county. On behalf of co-host Stephen DeLuke, this is Chrissy Hewitt, and as always, thanking you so much for listening. Thank you.